What I find especially offensive is not that we disagree on how to solve the problem, but that there is a damn, a damn callousness from our politicians to do anything other than debate. Alrighty, boys and girls, uh, another fine week of your favorite uh, Alabama political podcast, uh, Alabama Politics This Week. We were very creative with the name. Uh, Josh Moon and the person that makes it work is? Uh, oh, me again? David yeah, that's right. I'm going to keep saying it. I'm going to keep saying it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right, that, uh, that's uh, David Person, by the way. It's, it's me. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, uh, it's an uh, interesting week uh, this week. Um, um, you know, and I don't know what really uh, to, to start with. I guess, um, you know, we had elections and we are Alabama politics. And so you, you would think that. And uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's odd and given that that event happening, our elections here uh, that were our primary elections, which were very, very important. Um, but, you know, we also had the, the shooting. Uh, that took place at an, another elementary school shooting, which is uh, hard enough to imagine that there was one, but to say that there has been another elementary school shooting of of children in a classroom is uh, is something else. And 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 I know it happened in Texas, but um, you know I can't imagine that there was any person uh, with a small child. That's um, right. In this state, who when they took them to school or daycare um, this week didn't you know <laughs> didn't didn't have a thought um, and and yeah I mean I did you know I took sure. uh, took my little one to uh, yesterday and you know, we record on uh, on Thursdays I took her yesterday uh, uh, mom was had to go out of town and so we I took her up to daycare and we went a little later. And we kind of hung out at the house for a little while and, um, and, you know, and it wasn't really like a, a conscious sort of a thing, you know, we were just kind of, um, hanging around and then you, you get there and, you know, and you think, you know, I'm, I'm not doing anything different than what those parents of the, the 19 right. kids in Nivaldi did the day, the day before. And, and you drop them off at school and you don't yeah. think anything about it, you know? Um, and you shouldn't. You shouldn't think anything about it. You shouldn't think anything about. Yeah, obviously, you know that there's a chance that some accident could happen, that you get a phone call from the school saying, hey, they fell off of this or they did that right. or somebody hit them with a door or there was a kid that had, a, you know, a bat or something that, that uh, you know, in the, in the, on the playground that, 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 you know, something went wrong or whatever. And you, you, you always know that. But, you know, you, you don't you just don't you don't you don't think about. It's, it's still, I know it's happened a lot. All right. I, I get it. I get it. It's happened a lot around in this country. Now, only in this country. Only in this country. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. A lot. That's right. Make it plain. Uh, that's right. But, yeah. But it's, you know, you still, you still, it's so, it's so mind boggling to, to think about taking your, your little one to, to school and that there is, you know, there, there's a chance and, and, you know, I, and I, I struggle with, with, well, what chance, you know, well, you, you hear a lot of people, well, there's yeah, you got a better chance of getting struck by lightning, but you know, it's, it's not, it's not zero. It's not, yeah, it's exactly. not what it was when, when I was in school and I was, wasn't in school all that long ago. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, 
I just here, here, here it is, Josh. Here it is. The two places that when I was growing up, and I'm I'm a, I'm, I'm a bit older than you, but when you were growing up too, the two places that we or the three places that we expected to be safe from this sort of thing. Home, school, and your house of worship. Two of those places, now we know for sure, we're not safe. We're not safe. Our children are not safe. We're not safe at school from mass. I'm talking about mass shootings. Mm -hmm. You know, I know things, bad things can happen at home too. Domestic violence and and horrible things happen in many homes. So I'm not, I'm not detracting from or dismissing any of that. But in terms of mass shootings, we thought we were safe in those places. It never occurred to us that we weren't going to be safe in those places. And what I find as an American, what I find especially offensive is not that we disagree on how to solve the problem, but that there is a damn a damn callousness from our politicians to do anything other than debate. You know, they, you know, so we got a, we got Republicans in the Senate who are pretty much the reason as, as uh, golden state warriors coach, Steve Kerr pointed out uh, at a press conference earlier this week, they are the reason primarily that HR eight has not advanced this very simple background check enhancement bill, basically. Mm-hmm. They are the reason this has not advanced. And okay, so fine. You don't want to do that. Well, then what the hell do you want to do? Because children are, are, are dying in schools. People are dying in houses of worship. People are dying in shopping malls. This is an, an epidemic of evil. And and none of us can really, if you have any kind of sense, can really feel safe anywhere. Which is why in my column that I wrote this week, and I think both of us approached this from from different ways, and I think and I think they were both effective columns. Uh, in my column this week, I think the only thing, the only possible chance we may have of shaking people out of this stupor that we're in in terms of just being content to not do anything is to start, do what Mamie Till did 60 some odd years ago. If, if, if parents, you know, they, they said that the bodies of some of those babies at that school were so bullet riddled and, and maimed that they couldn't identify them any other ways than to get DNA swabs from the parents. My God, imagine that. What if, what if those parents, and I'm, and I, you know, I certainly wouldn't say they have to do it, but if they chose to do it, like Mamie Till did, what if they decided to let the nation see what this evil has done to their children? Yeah. Yeah, that's. Um, I mean, I, yeah, and I've I've thought about that as as well, and and um, you know, I 
I, I and I just um, you know I at a I can't imagine. I said there was an interview with a, with uh, Anderson Cooper did did an interview with a with a father, and I mean he would just God. I mean I, I don't I don't know how the dude was standing upright, um, and um, I, I just it, it's. Um, God, uh, yeah, I, I mean, and I, I think you're right. I think you're 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 100 right that because we've seen this so many times, uh, you know. And my my go back, I always go back to the Ray Rice incident uh, mm-hmm. to to relay to people, um, uh, you know, the the value of visuals on, uh, to the American public, um, and um, you know, because we all heard what Ray Rice had done to his wife girlfriend in an elevator. And then we saw the video from the elevator and the responses were two different things completely. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that you're, so in that regard, I believe that you are right. I just, I, I can't, I can't imagine as a, as a parent, you know what I mean? And the, the strength that that would take, although you, you, you have a fantastic example, one, honestly, that I wish I would have thought of. Um, and, um, and, and it's, you know, I mean, it's it's so it's so disheartening to listen to these dipshits talk about doors um, and uh, mental health, um, and you know it's especially disheartening to talk to hear them talk of mental health, knowing that they themselves have blocked the expansion of Medicaid, the expansion of mental health services have cut funding for so many programs that would have aided so many people like this. And so the the thing that the thing that gets me so much is, is it automatically goes right back into stupid territory that we do with these complicated problems where, well, it's a mental health issue. And then, you know, the people, well, it's a gun issue. Well, it's both. All right. It's a it's a it's a combination of a lot of things. Okay, it's a it's a mental health issue. Certainly these people that would do this certainly have mental troubles. I don't think there's anybody uh, who would dispute that on any level whatsoever. And we've got to start doing a better job of that. Uh, But we also have a gun problem when an 18 year old can buy two AR-15s in a span of a couple of months, stockpile up on 400 or some odd rounds of, of, uh, of bullets. Um, and, uh, you know, buy himself a Kevlar vest, uh, whether it had plates in it or not. Um, and nobody has any damned idea that he did it. Right. That's, that's a stupid fucking way to live. Okay. That's right. That's it's right. a, it is. It's a, that's a stupid way. If I told you tomorrow that I'm going to let you go out and drive a car without ever giving you any training and ha- forcing you to buy a license, you'd say, whoa, that's a dumbass way to live. What are you that's doing? Right. That's Today, right. I could walk into Walmart and buy a gun with all the bullets that I wanted, put it in there, strap it to my waist and walk around Walmart twirling the damn thing on my finger and it would be legal. Yeah. Legal. Yeah. That's stupid. That's right. It is stupid, a stupid, stupid way to live. And we all know it's stupid. We all know it's dumb. We all know there there has not been a law proposed in this uh, in this country uh, in the last 30 years that would have prevented me from owning any weapon that I'd want to own. Not one. Not one. Not one Mm -hmm. single law has been proposed that would prevent me from having a handgun of any caliber that I'd I'd like to have, Mm. that would uh, prevent me from having a shotgun that I'd like to have, that would prevent me from having a rifle to go hunting with or do any sort of sport shooting that I would like to have. Nothing. Nothing has been proposed that would have done that. The only thing that's been proposed is 
I would like to know that we're not giving these weapons to criminals or people with a history of mental illness. Mm -hmm. I would like to know that we could put people on on a red flag watch list uh, because of their mental health struggles. Uh, I would like to know, you know, who buys 8,000 rounds of bullets, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. I'd like to know that. Mm -hmm. All right. I'm sorry. And I would like to know that when somebody buys a gun, that at least somebody somewhere has put them through a course that said, hey, here's how you use this. Here's the safety. Here's the trigger. Here's how you shoot it. Here's how you got to store it. You know what? Why is that? Who who disagrees with that? There's nothing unreasonable. Nothing unreasonable about any of that. And and the idea of also having some sort of and I would just add to what you said. You know, there's nothing unreasonable with having some sort of a red flag system if you got somebody who is clearly building an arsenal for himself or herself. Mm-hmm. There ought to be some federal agency to just say, hey, let's look into this. You know, not not saying the person has to be arrested or thrown into a black site, but no. you know, just you know, let's, let's, let's take a swing through his Facebook or 4chan page something. and see what the hell he's posting about. That's right. That's right. You know, that's right. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's stupid. It's that's the only word. It's a simple term, but it, it describes it perfectly for what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. It's so fucking stupid. All right. It's so, and I'm I'm sorry for the language, but it is, it's just fucking stupid. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, and I, I just can't, I, I mean, you know, and I mean, I've talked, you know, about the, history that I have with, with, you know, the re- the very recent history that my family has with, with guns and, and uh, both of those should have been prevented, you know, yeah. could have been. Um, and um, um, it, it just, it's just, it's so dumb and, and, you know, but it gets us back into the, the other part of this is this mindset that we have that has been cultivated over years and years and years by right-wing politicians and gun lobbyists um, of, of projecting this macho image with gun ownership mm-hmm. um, and, and this fake reality of, of safety. Um, when, whenever you have a gun in, in your possession, you are safe. You know, you're safe from the bad guys. You are, you can go out and fight for these people who are being hurt by the bad guys. Um, it's, it's a tool. Okay. That's all it is. It's just that this, this infatuation that we have with this tool is so off the charts, ridiculous to me. I mean, if you told people that, Hey, listen, we've got a lot of people dying from hammer deaths, you know, uh, because people are not using hammers correctly. And, and so we're, I mean, we had like 17,000 kids die last year because people are using hammers incorrectly. People Mm -hmm. would be like, Holy shit, hammers? Well, we need to we need to do something about that. Exactly. Let's you know, let's teach people how to use hammers and restrict them uh, so they don't use hammers the, the wrong way. I mean, we had one dude try to blow up an airplane with a shoe bomb, and we've been taking our shoes off at the airport for 25 damn years now. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And it's yeah. reasonable. Yeah. It's reasonable. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's not an inconvenience. Do yeah. the things that like that. It's just, but you know. Instead, we got yeah. your girl KIB with a gun in her purse and High Katie Britt with an AR fifteen and high stepping at the at the shotgun range. That's right. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, uh, to prove to prove what to prove what. What are you proving? I mean, nothing. Nothing meaningful. 
I mean, what are you, what are you uh, protecting the Second Amendment? Who's coming for the Second Amendment? Nobody. And nobody has been, like you no. said. Nobody has been coming for the Second Amendment. It, 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 hey, I'm, I wanna, before we run out of time, Josh, I want to circle back to your column. That first of all, that was a beautiful. That was a beautiful concept. I just, I really loved. I really love, and I really, to be honest with you, when I read it, when I read the opening line, "Dear teachers, public school teachers," I thought, I did not think about this. <laughs> Uh, the ultimate compliment from another writer, by the way. I mean, God, yeah. God, God in heaven knows. That's that's yeah. little. I was like, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> but having get gone past my own ego issues, <laughs> it was a beautiful. The sentiment was so beautiful, you know, oh, and it was you. so true. Mm-hmm. You know, you really brought home for me, and I, you know, my first wife. Uh, who I who I still care, you know, for. She's the mother of my son and so forth. She was a public school teacher or is a public school teacher. So, you know, th- that really resonated with me. This this whole idea of just what public school teachers are sacrificing. Yeah. You know, especially now. I mean, they've always been a sacrificial, and I say public school teachers. This is all teachers, public and private. But yeah, yeah, and I'm but, yes, and I wanted to make that distinction as well uh, because I, I did want to say one thing. I, that, but listen, there are a lot of private school teachers. There are a lot of charter school teachers out there that that, that do a fantastic job and care just as much about their children. They, but they haven't faced the same sort of BS that that public school teachers have over the last few years. That's the reason why I singled out public school no, teachers because I, just the unending amount of BS they faced. Right, and I think you're right because it's. Their process, you know, the, the, everything about the everything over their heads is political. I mean, mm-hmm. there's just a whole political machine, you know, that includes the governor, the legislature and, you know, superintendents and school boards and all that. So you're exactly right. But the sacrifices that these teachers are making, especially now, I mean, they're literally taking their lives into their hands. and. And the and the way that you talked about that and reminded us about how these beautiful teachers were were found dead, shot dead, covering, trying to protect their students. My God, if that doesn't bring, yeah, I mean it's it's. it's... If it doesn't it's, bring it's, tears to your eyes, I just, my God. Uh, it's, it's, and I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I just, you know, you read it and I mean, reading the, the note that uh, the one uh, teacher in, in Nivaldi's daughter, um, uh, I believe it was, or, wasn't Morales, but I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure about which, which one it was, but you know, she, she, you know, the, the note that she left for, uh, you know, and, and just, I, it, it just is, it, it, what we have done here, what yeah. we've done, is shameful. Yes, all right. Yes. It's it is. It's we have we've put, we have allowed this to put the best of us, and, and that's what public school teachers are. Uh, you know, they are. Listen, I, I know, you know people love to focus on the negatives and the people that don't care and the people that are you know that that but they hate or whatever. Ninety nine percent of the school teachers out there 
They go in there and they do that every day because they love it. And they talk the way you look. You, you talk to a teacher and everybody out here knows a teacher and, and don't act like you don't. You, you know a teacher and you talk to them and you you hear what they talk about with their kids. And you know how excited they get when their kids uh, get what they're trying to teach them and how how they spend their time on these lessons plans and coming up with new and innovative ways to teach the kids and how excited they are when they come up with something that really clicks with them, uh, you know, and they go in and and they and they raise your kids every day. You know, they, they come in there and they raise your kids every day and they do. They care for them so much that they're going to put themselves between a bullet and the kid uh, it, mm. just without even thinking about it. They don't even think about it, man. Mm. They don't even think about it. And they do it. They do it every single one of these that's happened. Every single one of these that's happened. There's a story about a teacher that put themselves in between the madman with a gun and their children. Mm. And those, and those, every single, go back and read them. Every single time there is a teacher that tried to tackle the guy or rushed him or got shot protecting the kids or tried to barricade the door and got hurt. You know, all of the time there, every single time. And, you know, just to watch these, these folks, even without that, even without that, to watch them be vilified and act like they're grooming kids because they want them to read a book that my, you know, that strays outside of what their dipshit parents learned in school or something, you know, uh, or, or just, you know, because they were going to teach them that, Hey, you know what? The founding fathers owned some slaves. Hey, don't forget that, you know, uh, all yeah. that's CRT and we're going to bring them up on CRT charges. You know, it, it's, it's shameful. Yep. It is a shameful attack on these people and the people behind it are only interested in the money. That's all they're interested in. They're not interested in actually educating your children properly. They're only interested in being able to get their grubby ass hands on the millions and millions of dollars that flow through the public school systems in America. That's all they care about. Mm. Um, And that is no matter what you feel about the public school system in your area or whatever experience you've had, the public school system in America is probably the greatest example of public education in the history of the world. Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. I mean, it does. They take every kid who walks through that door, they take them no matter their learning disability, no matter what they've learned at home, no matter what their home situation is, Mm -hmm. they take every single person that walks through that door and they do their damnedest to educate them properly. And, you know, that, that's yep. that's all you can ask out of them, and and it just is shameful to me to to hear people vilify them and put them down, and um and to to know, um you know this is this is who they are. But yeah, all right, beautiful column, man. Seriously, that was um well, I you. mean, as you can tell, it moved me, and just um you well, know. that does mean a lot. It really does, and I it just you know I, I just I. Uh, there was a lot of things that I want to write, and I'll probably write some other stuff about the, the actual shooting and what went on and stuff later. But in it, it, the gun issue we have here, but uh, you know, it, it, at the time, it just seemed like somebody ought to, ought to you know, recognize that yeah. there are a lot of teachers out there that that did that. So, Absolutely. Yeah. All right. I'll tell you what, let's, uh, let's slide out. Uh, we're going to come back, uh, with, uh, ASU's Dr. Quentin Ross. And, um, you know, we, I know we had said at the beginning of this, we we're going to do, we we're also going to cover the election stuff, but we'll have to get to that in the close. Uh, and we'll do it real quickly because listen, y'all know what happened. Uh, yeah. we'll just talk about it for a minute. Okay. <laughs> listen, we, we wrote about it. Read, yeah. read something. Yeah. Put that public school education to use and read. Uh, so, yeah. all right. Uh, back in a minute with, uh, Dr. Ross. Thank you.
I'm David Person with Alabama Politics This Week. You know you listen to me and Josh every week, and we have a blast as we talk about Alabama politics and culture and as we interview newsmakers and journalists about Alabama politics and culture. Thanks for your support of this great podcast, and I hope that you will continue to not only listen, but to share it with your friends and also give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're listening to it. Thanks a lot. All righty, welcome back. Alabama Politics This Week, Josh Moon, David Person, and we are happy now uh, to, to get in here, a guy that uh, that I've known for, for a long time uh, and uh, a person that, honestly, I don't say this about very many people, but a person that I consider a friend, uh, and that is the president of Alabama State University, uh, Dr. Quentin Ross. Uh, listen, we really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're busy over there, but uh, thank you for stopping by and spending some time with us. Well, Josh, thank you so much, and and, and likewise, the feeling, feeling is mutual. We We've been around a long time. We've seen a lot of things. So, uh, <laughs> hey, hey nobody says that. Do all of that, right? So <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's a, and nobody says that about me. Right. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> that's right. So, uh, Listen, I, you know, I, I wanted to get you on for for a couple of reasons, um, and, and we would we've been trying to to line up for a while. You know, we record on on a certain day, and, and you're busy, uh, and so I'm I'm happy we could get it uh, finally get it nailed down because I, you know, I, I've I've watched what's taken place over at Alabama State over the last several years, and and I've written about it, and I think people know my feelings about the the job that I believe you have done there, and uh, but also I think that other people. I have have started to recognize this, uh, and and you received an appointment to the HBCU advisory committee from uh, the Biden administration, um, and and that was I, I really want to kind of start there, I guess, and uh, y'all just head to the first meeting, um, I guess. What can you kind of talk about what what the committee does, what your role is on there, and 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 how did the first meeting go? Sure. Well, listen. First of all, again, thank you, Josh, and and thank you all for giving me this opportunity to share with you uh, for a few minutes today, but. You know, never in my wildest dreams uh, that I have in my future being president of Alabama State University. Uh, but I always say that God, uh, he knows best. He has a plan for you. Of course, you know that my trajectory was, you know, on the end of education and getting ready to uh, go into my second. I would have been running uh, for my fifth term probably this time, uh, Josh, in legislature. But uh, duty called and, and, and God saw fit to bless me with the opportunity to become the 15th president of my my alma mater. I mean, I, I sometimes have to sit back and pinch myself, Josh, because, you know, both my parents graduated from Alabama State and I have relatives that have done the same. And I am the 15th president of a 155 year old institution. And it's just a blessing uh, to do so. So I'm thankful for that. And, and so we've had, you know, problems connecting because I've just had my head down trying to do the work. Uh, <laughs> That's right. You know, just, you know, you just kind of put your head down and do the work. And, and it's, it's, it's just hard to believe that it's been five years already. And, and we're at this point. And because of the work, as you mentioned, uh, I think people are taking note. And so I was uh, honored to receive the appointment by uh, the Biden administration to his um, uh, president's advisory board on the White House initiative. And, and that is uh, an executive order that uh, has uh, been signed by president after president. But he has uh, really had uh, more, more teeth in it to give more latitude to this advisory committee. And this committee 
would normally, you know, report. They've been in some different places. They report to the, the head of the Department of Education and report to someone that was on the White House staff. But but it, but it has a direct reporting line to its executive director to the White House, to 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 the president. And because I think that they have shown uh, the Biden and Harris administration has shown that they are committed to, uh, if I can say, uh, righting the wrongs uh, of what is taking place to higher in higher education as in regards to historically black colleges and universities. And so I, I'm just honored to have this opportunity. And so what we do is 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 we advise the president and, and we laid out our strategic priorities at our first meeting. Our first meeting was held at the uh, United States Department of Education. We were sworn in. Uh, so I was sworn in with uh, there, there are 18 of us and there were 16 of us that were there. So we were sworn in and, of course, greeted by the United States Secretary of Education, uh, uh, Dr. Cardon, Cardona. And so during that meeting, we, we talked about uh, some of the priorities that we had uh, as, as a board, what we were going to be looking at moving forward. And so there were four strategic priorities that we talked about. And one was uh, correcting infrastructure inequalities. Uh, but people all the time, you know, we call historically black colleges for a reason. We're historical. Most of our buildings on our campus, uh, you know, the oldest building on my campus is uh, was erected in 1928 and we're still using it. And, and I could really, you know, send a list of all the buildings because traditionally we just have not received the dollars is critical, not just to Alabama State University, but across the country to all historically uh, black colleges. You know, and it was interesting. I raised at the meeting, I said, you know, back in 1964, they gave us the designation. Uh, but they didn't send any real dollars with it. Now, of course, you have your Title III and things of that nature. But, you know, all of that, when you're trying to play catch up, you know, you're really still running from behind. And so we're, we're focusing on ways that we can improve uh, the, the, the infrastructure, you know, that they had. Uh, the Build Back Better bill, which was a, a major infrastructure bill uh, that uh, the Biden administration uh, was trying to pass. And in that, it had opportunity for infrastructure uh, improvements for the uh, historical black colleges. But of course, you know, that's still stalled and they're still working on that. But what better way to put people back to work than a major infrastructure bill across this country for highways and byways? And uh, but, but they're also uh, to help with the uh, HBCU. So we're, we're hopeful that that still will kind of hang around and, and that we can be advocates for that, but really just coming up with other type of uh, creative solutions, because even when you talk about HBCU, uh, the HBCU Capital Finance Program, which was a program that was, uh, I have been appointed to uh, as well, the, a federal board that I've been appointed to. That's one way where, where an institution, a historically black college can go and get low you know, low uh, percentage bonds, you know, to do some creative things in building. But, you know, it's still a situation where you have to come up with the capital and be able to make the payments. And so uh, really, we're just going to be looking at ways that we can uh, really find some way to have some teeth into, you know, put some teeth into the infrastructure and inequalities across the country. And one other thing that I raised on the committee was that while even while we were working with Build Back Better and they have the Ignite portion of that bill, it, they were setting up where you could you know, go for competitive grants uh, for, you know, for infrastructure. Well, you know, sometimes that, that's still going to pit uh, uh, some institutions behind the, 
they won't be able to. Um, and so I, I told them that I thought it was important for us to uh, make make a t- take a position as as a committee that we wanted some direct appropriation, and we know that that can happen. We know it's happened uh, to other institutions all over the country. The other thing we talked about was increased federal research uh, support and opportunities. You know, many of our a lot of the institutions, PWIs, and you know I could name some, but you know who they are that uh, have done well with research, and that has been an economic engine for them, just by having giving them the opportunity. And so what we're saying is that to ensure that that is coupled with our institutions, because we have phenomenal professors, uh, we have phenomenal individuals that have great ideas, but, you know, navigating uh, and getting there, because the, the individuals that have been there all the time are the ones that, you know, normally get it. And so the big colleges all, always get it, you know, and I told the story of us working with the uh, uh, Army Corps of Engineers. And, and Josh, listen, it, it, you know, I told him how disheartening it was because my professors had worked with them uh, to put together a major uh, proposal. And so we were on the brink. I think that grant may have been 16 or 17 million dollars uh, to, to, to have that type of funding come to the institution. Well, when, when we started following up on it, what happened was, uh, and you know the dog eat dog process of the of the legislature, you know of the legislature of the congressional uh, congressional body, but we determined that they lo- they used our language, they used our research, and left us out of the money. I, I, you know, I just couldn't get that. So, yeah. so I told them that that kind of causes uh, research hesitancy. You know, of, of of our institutions that are smaller that may not have the big the big advocates. We did end up getting something, but it was, you know, because I pushed the envelope, you know, like yeah. well, you all came to us. And so we did get something, but for you to tell, you know, for you to talk to the program director and him tell you that, oh, well, you know, the university of Mississippi and the, you know, the big boys, they, they had already, you know, split the pie. Where do you do that? Yeah. Well, anyway, so anyway, um, trying to increase that. And, and Dr. Ruth Simmons, um, uh, uh, who is on? She's the president of uh, Prairie View uh, A&M University. She's she's a phenomenal uh, uh, woman. She she's well known, uh, and they're they're working on uh, some way that we can kind of um, find opportunity for us to 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 increase uh, research on historical black college campuses. Then you talk about broad and financial uh, support to students, and of course. Right. Um, we're looking at the increase. They'll increase um, the Pell Grant at, at some point. Uh, the year escapes me, but they're trying to get it up to at least eight thousand dollars. But what happens there is every time you move the needle, the move the you know inf- inflation comes in. It you know so the long. So you know you're still kind of getting behind. But making college more affordable, and I think, and and that's not just for historically black colleges. That's for colleges. Period. Because. Uh, we we know what the cost is uh, to going to uh, going to some of these institutions, and so trying to make it more affordable to give people uh, a, a hand up uh, so that they can become productive citizens. So that's another one of the priorities. And then finally, uh, increasing targeted about people something went wrong, but but. Those that have been established, you don't hear about them, but HBCUs, you know, they're, they're closing. We, you know, we just had one recently closing. I had to point out to them that, you know, we have the most HBCUs, uh, I think, of all the states. And looking down at Concordia and looking at other areas that 
Uh, Selma University is just barely inching along. So trying to find ways, and that's both public and private, right? Trying to find ways that we can undergird them uh, for their survival, because they are important to uh, their constituency, they're important to the community that they serve. And, that, and that's the other thing. When you look at the HBCU, we're, we're punching uh, way above our weight because we truly are dedicated to uh, educating our constituency, the population, you know, the community. And so that is another priority, trying to figure out ways to support. I told them that we just need to, you know, have, have a historically Black College Preservation Act, right? But then I go back to where I began to say that you give me the designation, but there's nothing, you know, nothing really solid to right. place that you that you maintain the uh, existence. So it was it was a phenomenal meeting. Got a, got a chance to interface with a lot of the other uh, board members. I think we'll convene again in, in in September. But I'm just honored to have the opportunity to serve. And and really, when you talk about higher education, I tell you all the time. <clears throat> but for the designation of HBCU in 1964, we were elite institutions of higher learning already, right? Because that right. was the only place that African-Americans could go uh, to get a, a solid education. And so we, we, like all institutions of higher education, uh, have phenomenal students, have phenomenal faculty and staff, phenomenal alumni that are doing great things, but it's just that inequity. And we've experienced it here in, Ala in Alabama. You know, when you talk about uh, Knight v. Alabama, right? Yeah, I was gonna bring that up. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you've got some experience with yeah. this uh, yeah, that you can play into. Yes, right? exactly. So I, I think all of that is, 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 is worth uh, discussing because if you look at it, look to what ha was happening in Maryland, you know, and it was funny because someone brought that up. One of the uh, NAFIO, which is one of the uh, uh, organizations that advocate for historically black colleges, you know, brought up the fact that Maryland, uh, you know, they're doing something with their funding. I know Tennessee is working on something, but I had to let them know that basically Knight v. Alabama laid the framework for any right. of the states who are seeking equitable funding. Uh, for for HBCUs in 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 their states, so so yeah. So President yeah. Ross, let me jump in here. Um, you uh, you have talked a lot about um, your uh, the, the the federal uh, aspect or or considerations that you have to take into account with the work that you do, and I'm glad you did that. And and now and now you just landed on the legislature and talking about the Knight case, which. Leads me to my first question, which is basically, can you give us a sense right now of what the legislature's relationship is to your HBCU in particular, and, but, but even more broadly, the other HBCUs in the state? And, and to help sort of provide some context here, I'm an HBCU graduate. I graduated from Oakwood University when it was Oakwood College. I went to uh, Alabama A&M University for uh, several semesters of graduate school. Um, so I have, I have a real keen interest in the health and well-being of HBCUs. And from what I can tell, especially when it comes to the state schools in this state, the challenge has been the legislature. What are, what's your what's your take on? Well, listen, and having come from that process, uh, the legislative process, I will tell you that, you know, if, if you're not at the table uh, to to advocate uh, for that, which is important to your institution, 
then then it gets lost in the shuffle. And I think that even when you look broader in terms of the the formula that's used, and you can't blame you know one uh, legislature because what they do is just carry on from what the last last has done. So we're talking about years ago, right? You start talking about building budgets. Really, you just kind of add on to that every so often, and not really a rhyme or reason. But then even when you try to put uh, a formula to it, if I can say that, right, to say it's based on enrollment or FTEs, you know, I will never have 30,000 students, mm -hmm. right, if, with, without the necessary infrastructure improvement, not the, right, but, but my, my counterparts will because most of what they have are individuals that are from out of state. Right. And, and so they they can use. And, and so the numbers are always going to be skewed in that in that regard. Now, having, having said that, I, I must say, from my standpoint, because of my past legislative experience and the relationships that I have there, I am able to go because, you know, sometimes when you know where things are, you, you can ask the questions and, and get something. You know, I tell people I go ask for 10 million dollars. But if you give me a million, that's a million more than what I had. And so, but but I think, and, and at one time the state was on a, um, looking at a performance-based uh, type uh, of, of agenda to, to give money. But if people would really look at it, when you talk about the Oakwood College, when you talk about the Alabama A&M, when you talk about Alabama State University, when you talk about the individuals that we serve, we serve individuals from within the state of Alabama. We serve individuals, first-generation students, uh, that, that come from uh, very meager means. Uh, we serve students that have a lot of challenges and barriers right, right. to higher education. And so we are filling in that gap. And if you use that criteria, right, right. if you use that criteria as the way that you fund, then, I mean, hands down, we would get the funding that we need. But so let's so 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 then let me again ask the question. Mm -hmm. What is you, you have a distinct advantage because you served in the legislature, but for the but, but for the rest of the HBCUs, particularly the, the state ones, the ones who are funded by the state, does the legislature, does the current legislature, as it is currently composed, does it have an appreciation for the historic value for the unique population that's being served? And are they willing to do more to improve the funding level and the sharing of resources uh, than they have been previous? Well, I'm, I'm going to separate my answer. Number one, do they appreciate and do they understand, you know, what what's happening? I would suggest that they do. And but but it's all about awareness. You, you, you're making them aware. Uh, you know, as long as you stay silent, as long as you're not uh, advocating. Uh, then, then nobody will pay attention. But I do think they they are aware. I would to 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 make the 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 leap, to make the the big leap, right? In 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 terms of equity, I think that that's still something to something left to be desired. Because when it comes down to it, the legislative districts and 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 the schools that are within their districts, that's who they, you know, really uh, have to look out for, so, so to speak. But then, you know, I think that you have, uh, you know, the governor, our current governor, uh, they get it, they understand it, but we're still just getting, so if there's a 5% increase across the board for all institutions, 
we just get the 5% increase, right? So we don't get any more uh, than anyone else uh, because of the population and, and, and what we mean to the community. So I, I think it's a constant education uh, piece. I think the tide has, has turned some, but then the other thing that happens, and I mentioned this at the meeting, sometimes you're uh, looked at because of the benefits that you can get from the uh, federal government, like Title III and things like that, you know, then they don't think that you need as much. But I say that that argument can't be used because when you look at the federal money that Alabama gets just in general for, for all of its programs, don't just, you know, base it on the federal money that we get because we're historically black institutions. But, you know, when you look at how much federal money that Alabama gets in general, uh, I don't think that that should be used to determine whether we get uh, the, the state funding that we, we are we are due. And, okay. and so you have to watch it. You really have right. to watch it because the one thing in this process that you don't want to do, you don't want to go backwards. So anytime right. that you can increase. And, and, and listen, let me let me say this to you. Uh, it, it's not lost on me that there is a burden of responsibility on our institutions as well. Now. Because, right. but, but, but again, when you talk in terms of disparities, the disparate, listen, we didn't get a board of trustees until 1976. So when you look at the, 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 the institutions that were all around us that were functioning under board of trustees, you know, we were functioning, we were governed by the State Board of Education. Okay. So, so, you know, you're yeah. talking about some 45, 46 years that we've had a board. So we're fairly still young in, in, right. in, in growing your boards of trustees and growing, you know, that, that mm -hmm. support system. To, to really uh, make, make, make an impact. So you have your boards of trustees and even with the money that you get, and I tell my people this all the time, regardless of what it is I, I get, I wanna make sure that I'm a good steward of that money because when you do that, then you can show uh, individuals that you have the ability to govern uh, and to be fiscally responsible, okay? If that makes sense. Let, let's yeah, uh, let, let's switch before we run out of time, right. President Ross. Let's switch gears real quickly. Uh, you have benefited, and when I say you, I mean you and the other HBCU presidents have benefited from uh, a very sympathetic uh, U.S. Senator Doug Jones, who uh, did a lot to help HBCUs. You've also even benefited from, surprisingly, I would say, uh, Tommy Tupperville, who has also expressed, uh, at least verbally, has really expressed support for HBCUs. We now are in a situation where you're about to have a new U.S. senator come in. It's either going to be, in my estimation, and I don't know if Josh agrees with this or not, but it's either going to be Katie Britt or it's going to be Will Boyd. Uh, do you have a sense between one of those two, or it could end up being Mo Brooks, God help us, but it could end up being Mo <laughs> Brooks too. But let's just say, let's say for the sake of argument, crossing our fingers that it's either Katie Britt or Will Boyd. Do you have a sense uh, from what you've seen of either of those two candidates that you will have a friend in HBCUs the same way you have had with Doug Jones and, and maybe to a lesser degree, Tommy Tupperville? Well, listen, that, that's, that's a great question. And, and there's none better than Doug Jones. Let me, let me say this, uh, having the opportunity to uh, work alongside with him and his advocacy in Washington for uh, the HBCUs is parallel to none. And so we're, we're thankful for that 
which he was able to get done uh, while he was there because he, you know, he didn't just talk about it. He did something about it and, and, and stood up uh, for what was right. Uh, as the current landscape stands now between uh, Boyd and, and between Britt, I, I think either one, uh, we would have um, someone who's willing to listen and, and an advocate. See, because when you look at the bipartisan support in Congress, uh, there, there's a, a broad bipartisan support between Senate Republicans and House Republicans uh, in terms of, uh, you know, how you approach trying to equalize, so to speak, this, this, um, uh, the, the, the HBCUs as we stand across this country. So I'm confident that even either one of them would would get, and they would find that those uh, bipartisan relationships, particularly when it, you know, that's one issue I believe that all of them can come together on, right? And and that and that's where we are now. So I, I'm I'm confident that it, you know either one, but then now it, it, the onus will be on me to make sure that I keep these issues uh, uh, before them. Uh, I tell my staff and my faculty all the time that we have to go to know. And I, I, I express that to other individuals. You know, I, I invite uh, whether it's going to be, you know, the Senator Britt or it's going to be Senator Boyd or whomever come to my campus to really touch and feel and see what we do. So when you're doing this advocacy, you, you know, you really can 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 talk about it. So I think it's a two way street. But but again, to answer your question, I think uh, either one would would be uh, uh, sensitive to the needs and would be great advocates for for our institution. Before uh, before we get you out of here, um, I, I know you uh, we, we promised twenty ish or so minutes or so, but uh, we, I, I did want to to bring up you know I mentioned earlier that uh, you know that, that we had known each other for a while, and uh, as a matter of fact, I wrote uh, back before you were uh, selected as uh, as the president there that I thought that you would make an excellent president, uh, and and you know it, it, true to my bias, I have uh, I've continued to tell people how right I was about this, and but I, I think. You know, I don't think that the average person truly kind of understands when I when I write about it, like where things were. Um, and because the uh, Alabama state was coming off of a period of time, uh, in which they were under this investigation by, that was brought on by the Bentley administration that really crippled, uh, the school. I mean, just absolutely wrecked the financial uh, status of the school. Um, and, uh, you know, it was in bad shape. You were losing students. The things were going downhill pretty fast. Uh, there was a scandal seemingly every other, other day, uh, uh that was playing out somewhere in things. Um, and, and honestly, the reason I felt like that you would make, uh, you know, a, a good president was number one, you cared about the school a whole lot. And, and number two, you had a lot of connections, uh, within the state legislature and, and in, in political circles, uh, that could put a stop to a lot of this nonsense that was coming in and, and hampering the school's growth. Um, I didn't know that you would necessarily do a lot of the other things that you did, uh, which, you know, have been have been really great. I mean, I, I, I watched y'all through uh, just for an example. And I, I don't know if David knows this or not, but I watched y'all through the, the covid uh, deal. And I, I, I would challenge anybody to find a university that was more at the technology forefront uh, on covid than y'all were. I mean, with all of the things that you brought in, the, the thermal scanners, the testing on campus, the partnerships with the uh, uh, Department of Public Health, getting out, not only that, you got out in the community in a lot of the places where there was a ton, ton of vaccine skepticism. 
uh, and y'all worked with them. And I think it made a huge difference in, in the inner city in Montgomery. You know, I, I just, I guess, do you, do you feel like what you've done over the last five years has been, has been the success that you wanted? Um, and do you, what, what do you feel like other people see, uh, from your performance as president and the school overall? Well, well, Josh, that's a that's a great question, and I and I'm glad that you had the confidence in me uh, to to uh, be 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 president and lead the institution, and you you stood true to it. But but listen, as I said, it's been five years, and and sometimes, Josh, and I, I, it's interesting. I have a little notebook that I write in, and and when I you know took on the position, you know, one of the number one things that I wanted to do was to uh, get some fiscal stability to the institution. Right. Because we were we were spiraling. Uh, we were spiraling out of control fiscally. We were losing students, as you said, in 2017, when I walked through the door in October after enrollment had already, you know, students had already returned. You know, we maybe lost some seven, eight hundred students. And so I wanted to stop, stop the bleeding. Then I wanted to make sure that we uh, stopped the bleeding. But then we also uh, helped to improve the morale on campus because you know when you've been in a fight and been beat down it's hard for people to keep uh keep you know keep going uh and when you talk about the physical plant and and the way the institution was looking it, it you know it was almost like it was a dark place because everything that it had gone through but i cannot you know take you know all of the credit uh it's my team the team that i assembled that has helped us to uh excel truly and when you look at it it's been an amazing five years really, really quick. So uh, my team, the team that I have assembled at Alabama State University, working alongside them, uh, were responsible for helping us uh, to, to get our fiscal house in order, to uh, get, you know, work with the media, right? Because that was, a, you know, the rep reputation and, and but, but the, the way that we did it, we said, listen, media, come on in and talk to me because I had to let them know that I no longer wanted to be the reality TV of any news station or any newspaper and, and just develop that relationship and rapport. And, and, but then also on the campus, letting it be known that there's only one spokesperson for Alabama State University. So they don't need to call all over campus asking a question because the answer should come from my office or the designee. So once we put those things in line, then we we were able to begin to control our narrative. Now, notwithstanding the things that go on, I mean, you know, they have dormitory problems at every school on this campus, you know, but that's not a news story. And so I want to be sure that people understood that's not what we call news. But when you talk about our fiscal uh, stability, you know, one of the first things I did when I got here, the first three months was was ask the board and they agreed to refinance about $141, $48 million worth of debt because we had bonds out there that had, had they called for them, 10 and $15 million, the school just did not have it to pay. So we had to make sure that we lowered our rates. So we were able to go to the HBCU capital finance program in just the first three months. Now, remember I got there in October. In December, I was signing a deal and flew up in January to sign the paperwork. And that put us on, 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 on great financial footing. And we took the position that we were going to cut. We were going to make cuts across the board. We were going to ask that people kind of tighten their belts. They retool. Uh, we reorganized areas. But I gave my, you know, my leadership team the, the, the autonomy to do that. And so we saw that cost savings come along. So it, we were trying, you know, going down this path of getting our fiscal house in order. And it also helped that the legislature 
you know, because of relationships, we're able to throw, you know, throw in a little more to help with some of the deferred, immediate deferred maintenance issues. I don't want to take anything away from them, uh, but, but, but how we managed our money. And so it, it put us on the on this track. We said that we were going to be a data-driven institution. So my Office of Institutional Effectiveness, we don't move or make decisions without the data that they have collected to say that this is what we need, what we need to do. And so all of that kind of set us on this trajectory to kind of move, you know, kind of move the needle. And I, I used to, I likened it to a ship when I got there. I went and spoke to all the colleges. I said, listen, this is a ship, and there are holes in the ship. All I want to do right now is plug the holes. Once I plug the holes, right, then I'll be able to kind of steer, steer the ship. And so we began to turn and, and, and the confidence of the faculty and staff in terms of the leadership, because leadership stability is important. They need to know that the individual that is at the top, uh, you know, cares and that they are going to do everything that they can to, to preserve uh, the, the institution. So we were able to do things like that. But then I walked in, Josh, and we, you know, our SACS accreditation was coming. So here I am. Brand new president. Now, while in K through 12 in the uh, two year college system, I've been through the SACS reaffirmation process. But we, here we have a college uh, where, where, you know, now it's time for them to be reaccredited. Re and if you look at the history of the accreditation process over the last 20 years, now there was always some monitoring, some, you know, and I think I saw something where the accreditation was taken for a minute. And, but my goal was that we're going to get through this process. And we're going to include everybody in the process. See, sometimes you find out when you get to an organization that people have been working in silos. Well, for the first time in the history of the institution, everybody had to uh, participate in the SACS process. As a matter of fact, I set up SACS COC Central in my conference room so people can, you know, so I can see people coming and working through the process. But my team, you know, Dr. Petty, Dr. Uh, Christine Thomas, our SACS liaison, you know, everyone did a wonderful job, so much so that we were, reaff we were reaffirmed, right, during mm -hmm. COVID with no right. findings. Zero. Right. And that Zero. was the first right. thing. I, I hope you all saw when we cut the cake and everything. We had a big celebration because it was something to celebrate about. Because if you lose your accreditation, then you're losing everything, losing your ability to title four dollars, losing financial aid. And so we, we were destined to, to do that. And so I'm just so proud. So we we've crossed that hurdle. But then we said, well, let's look at the programs that we have here at Alabama State. Have we ever done a, a, a program uh, feasibility study? Right. And so what we did was look at was look at the whole academic enterprise to say, hey, are these classes cutting it? These programs cutting it? If not. And so we got everybody involved, the faculty. You know, faculty were part of these uh, these these uh, focus groups to talk about it. So we did a feasibility study. We did away with some programs. And if you look now, we, we have programs that we recommended. We're getting ready to start our MBA program this fall. So just doing those tedious tasks, you said you didn't know what else I had to do. Well, yeah, that, you know, that's a part of it, Josh, right? The, the, right, right. And so yeah. looking at programs and all of that is data driven. But we are even surveyed and have been surveying since I got here. Uh, our students' satisfaction in terms of the faculty, the staff, uh, the alumni, external people, and you, uh, uh, Ruffalo Noel Levitt was in here, and they just did an independent survey, and we did a presentation at the board, and what it showed was from 2018 to 2022 that there has been a significant move in terms of the perception and the way people feel about the institution. 
which is all positive. Now, were there some things in there that we use to drive to say, hey, we got to get better here? Yes, but for the most part, we have moved the needle in the last five years in terms of people's perception, people wanting to give to the institution, but it takes work and it takes a team. And so that's what we've been dedicated to. You mentioned COVID. Listen, I can remember when COVID hit and we met for the first time, Josh, around my conference table two weeks ago since we had to make the decision. The last time we met around that table was when we had to make the decision to send students home. But I can remember pulling up to that campus and I'm standing outside like this campus is, is, is closed. But I look across the street and I see Patterson Court. And I said, now I have the means to be able to go find out, get a test, go see my doctor. But let me think about the mom you know, who has five children that may live across the street and can. So I, I called Dr. Davis, Dr. Uh, Joyce Lloyd Davis, who was our senior health officer. And I said, look, let's, let's do something. You know, I want you all trained on this COVID piece, but I wanna, want you trained so not only that you can do something for the institution, but so you can do something for the, the community at large. And so we got together, we reached out to the Department of Health and I'll never forget the first clinic. So we started a drive up clinic. This was just for testing. And so they said, you know, you had to have all these symptoms present. You know, the, you know, you had to have all this before you could get a test. And I told him, I said, listen, if I'm a mother of five, I can't, you know, wait until my child, if I have it, I can't wait until my child presents. I need to know whether they have it now, right? At that, that day, they said, well, look, just test anybody that, that wants to come, right? And so we began our testing service on that campus. And so working you know, with the technology to get all the rapid tests, the Sophia uh, 2, to get the Abbott Now, to get the Dragonfly, to the scanners, we did all of that and got all these tests in so that we could test the entire campus, right? Because we wouldn't let people come back unless they were tested. We put together our own algorithm, right, for sample testing. So Kids, if you go to class and you get a, you, you're told to come test and you don't come, you're locked out of Blackboard. We became mass mandatory. So we put all, I mean, it was just such a wonderful opportunity. So then you talk about moving to the vaccines. And, and so when the Department of Education in, in Washington, matter of fact, they called us for our plan as well. You know, there were some other colleges, but we, we had been on the news. We had been on ABC, Good Morning America. Uh, see, you know, CNN and other places, but it was because people were, were serious about the work, love Alabama State and working hard together. So what did we do? We ended up vaccinating, you know, over 1,300 employees at Hyundai so they could go back to work, over 1,200 individuals in the Montgomery Public Schools so they could go back to work. We told them, come back, bring your children, all in Lockhart Gym, this little gym, uh, right. Mr. Person, right here on on, on uh, right. University Drive at Jackson Street in the, in the, the sweat know, box, baby. It, it was the sweat box. In the heart, right? But yeah, we did right. all of that there. You talked about hesitancy, but then we offered, and you saw the judges from Montgomery County come to Alabama State to get their vaccines and to be tested. And so it, it just created. So listen, to have two, we were less than two percent throughout COVID. We were less than one percent last year because I wasn't playing with them. Because either you're going to follow the uh, process, everybody going to go home, right? So, <laughs> so but, but, but no, it, 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 Josh, you know, just to say, it, it, it's just been a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to have such great people. Last thing, I, a couple of things I say is, look, we did a strategic plan. Our 20, uh, focus 2030, 
a true strategic plan with, with involvement from the community, from the faculty, from the staff, from the board of trustees, and all of it is connected to a matrix. It's all connected to a report card. We're data-driven. We're going to look at that. So if you hadn't gotten one, we're going to have to have to get you one. It looks real real good. I, I got it. I have to send you one. But it's out there on our, our website as well. But also, when you talk about the finances, so the wind got behind our back with COVID. And know that we had the CARES money, but I, I want to say this. If we had not gotten CARES money, Josh, we still would not have had to lay off one person because of the fiscal responsibility that we had uh, practiced, right? We wouldn't have had to lay off anybody, but thank God <laughs> the CARES money because uh, some of the deferred maintenance, but then I had the opportunity and, you know, a lot of different people were working on it, but I, I was with um, my federal lobbyist while I was in Washington, uh, Pete, and we were talking about this. And he said, man, I'll never forget when I told you uh, to get on the call with Tim Scott. He said, have your question ready. He said, you're going to be the first one. I got on that call. I thank Senator Scott for what they had done because they were allowing us to defer, right? Now, this is just for the people who were in the HBCU Capital Finance Program, about 40 institutions, right? But, you know, they had had Katrina and they had all this, you know, this devastating, these devastating things that happened. And, you know, I remember them doing some forgiveness. Right. So I remember I asked Senator Scott, I said, listen, thank you all so much for the deferment. Thank you for I said, but do you think that you all uh, would, would do a long forgiveness? I'll never forget his pause and his kind of stutter. And he said, well, I, I just don't know about that. But interestingly enough. Pete got on the job. He was sent. He sent. We sent follow-up emails to his policy people. To to uh, uh, I think then then Doug Jones' office. We sent some to Shelby. Said right. Pete called me one night and said somebody called and said, "Can you believe it that the language for forgiveness is in?" And they gave one point three billion dollars. Right. So what State University was that they forgave the one uh, 141 million that I had refinanced. But the caveat was they're part of the HBCU finance program. So just think about it. Come in 2017, they kind of pushed that thing in the first three months, I'd be talking a different story. The only yeah. thing that we owe at Alabama State right now is our stadium, and we've just refinanced that. So yeah, I believe everybody just got a raise, didn't it? Yeah, but look, and, and so we we did and look, we did our, our strategic plan, we did a salary study, and what we did with the salary study, independent salary study, we started last year, we just got it back. And what we said was when they came back and they showed us the individuals that were below the market value, we want to raise the individuals that were below that are below the market value up to the market value, plus everybody's gonna get across the board six percent raise. Wow. Listen, God, God is good. He's been good to us. Wow. Uh, but but that is those are the things that we've been doing to continue our our our, our trajectory on 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 excellence. And so well, I'm just know, what you just said. Up. And I know we got to go, Josh. Yeah. But what you just said, President Ross, really uh, is so relevant because I know one of the challenges that some HBCUs are having is retaining employees. You know, and it's because of the pay disparity and, and other issues that I won't get into right now. But but uh, but good, good, good on you. That's 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 great that you were able to achieve that. 
Yeah, and, and we listen, it's it's a lot of work, but I, but I love it, you know, because it's moving us in the right direction and doing everything that we uh, can. Because even before that, David, listen, when I couldn't do anything, I would raise money to get, even if it was just $200, to give everybody a, a, a little bonus every Christmas. I had, for, for the last four years, five years, that's what I've done, right? Uh, and I probably won't stop. But just to incentivize people to let them know, and I would always tell them, I said, let me, let me get there and I, I will, I'm going to try to make something happen. But now I don't want it to be lost that 20 months ago, well, in the last 20 months, what they've done now is gotten 8% because I gave a 2% last year. Right? But all of it takes a lot of hard work. I'm thankful for the community, for all of our community partners, uh, everyone who, who understands uh, the excellent that excellence that's, that lies at Alabama State University. Uh, again, I'm just blessed to have the opportunity to serve as its president. And and I'm I'm here five years, Josh. I don't know. I, I'm going to stay here forever. But I'm here right now. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, I I don't think anybody who's heard you talk here uh, today w- would doubt the uh, the love you have for for the university and the job that you're doing and how dedicated that you are to it. And then listen, I I I wanted to get you on to just talk about that, and so maybe it would it would spread the word and people would kind of understand, you know, what's out there, what's facing HBCUs, what you've been able to do at ASU, and uh, and kind of educate people. On, on what's happening here, and I, I mean, that's very important to, to David and I, the, the HBCU community. Um, and 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 listen, congratulations on all of that, and really thank you for for spending some time with no, us. Today. Thank you all so much. Thank you all for what you thank do you. And, and and keeping us all informed. Uh, continue to do the job that you do. Uh, it's, it's very necessary. We appreciate you. All right, thank you. All right. Thank you. That's uh, that is Dr. Quentin Ross uh, from Alabama State University. Uh, really, uh, and listen, I know I'm biased. I know I'm biased because mm-hmm. uh, I like the guy. Uh, I do. I like him personally. Absolutely. I like the, the and and listen. It's easy. It's easy to like him. Okay, it's easy to like him. He, he does a great job and he cares and and you want people like that around. So let's we'll slide out of here. Come back in just a minute to wrap this thing up. Alabama politics this week. everybody. If you would uh, like an opportunity to interact with us here at uh, Alabama Politics this week, uh, we've got a great way for you to do that. Uh, shoot a question over to apwproducer at gmail.com. That's apwproducer at gmail.com. Anything about Alabama politics you want to know about uh, I don't know, what, what everybody likes to drink or uh, where everybody likes to hang out or I mean, whatever, whatever your question may be. Uh, what chances the Democrats might have uh, in the uh, the upcoming midterm elections? Uh, shoot us a question over at apwproducer at gmail.com. apwproducer at gmail.com. Thanks. All righty. Welcome back. Alabama Politics this week. Uh, really yeah. appreciate uh, Dr. Ross joining us. And, yeah. Uh, and he, he, listen, he can filibuster with the best of them. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's honestly, I'll say this. It's, um, um, I, I know he went, he went long on, on some of the stuff, but um, it, it's, it's nice to see somebody in such a role 
who mm-hmm. is that excited about what he does. Um, Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and, is, is, and I, I know I called him a friend. He is a friend. I'm very biased about that. Uh, you know, I like him a lot. I think he's done a great mm-hmm. job there at ASU. Um, and, um, and really, one of the things that, that I like about it is, is he's done a great job and it served a community that, that desperately needs it. And and ASU, like all HBCUs, are very, very is very, very important to the to the local community there uh, because it it serves a population of students that would not be served otherwise. And it yes. has transformed the lives of entire families. And uh, and you can look at that at, at a number of HBCUs, A&M, uh, Oakwood. Uh, I mean, just up and down the line, uh, you know, you, you, you see where they are and you know what they do. And um, it's it's anyways, it's nice to see. See what he did. Uh, or, or yeah, I was, so far. I was really impressed with his uh, depth of knowledge and uh, analysis. It was good yeah. conversation. Yeah, he gets into it. He gets into it. So, uh, all right, um, let, let, let's do talk for just a minute about what uh, happened primary uh, time here in, in Alabama on Tuesday evening. Um, I was not very surprised by most of what I saw. I will say. I was somewhat pleasantly surprised at the seeming rejection of far right wing talking points by Republican voters Um, in in pretty much every case, maybe excepting Mo Brooks, uh, although I don't know that there was much of a choice there uh, uh, that didn't include right wing uh, politics for the second place uh, person in the in the U.S. Senate race, um, in pretty much every race, though, even down in the state legislature, um, voters pretty resoundingly rejected the the far right wing people to the point that Tim James came in third, third yeah. in this thing uh, in the governor's race, and Ivy ran uh, just ran away with with a thing with you know no runoff needed. Um, and, but you look at some of the state legislature races and, and even in those, you know, people, people did not vote for the crazy guy. And, and even when they did the crazy incumbent facing much weaker competition, uh, really struggled mightily in this thing. And so maybe it's a, maybe it's a nice turn. I don't know. Well, one, one thing I'll say about the, um, the, the, uh, gubernatorial, uh, Republican primary, uh, to to sort of add to what you just said, is that I think people have long since, you know, you know, people discovered it. I think a while back who Tim James really is. Mm-hmm. Tim James, unfortunately, I believe, is motivated by a sense of extreme entitlement. I believe that he he believes. I believe that he believes that he has earned the right to run for governor, even though he hasn't served in any other capacity. He hasn't served the state in any other capacity, but he believes that he's earned the right to do that because of his daddy's, his daddy was governor and, and he's got his daddy's last name and he kind of looks like his daddy, you know? Uh, And yes, he's done well in business from what I hear, but that doesn't mean that you deserve to be governor of the state. Mm-mm. And, you know, you got to prove that. You got to really, you got to show that. And, and he hasn't done anything other than he surfaces every four years or so and, and you know, kind of pitches his tent 
at the farthest right extreme end of the political spectrum and throws bombs at everybody else. That's that's his pattern. And I think people just see that for what it is, even if they agree with some of his political views. I think they just think, eh. Yeah, that's how this guy is. I think you're right about that. I think that you're right about the there. There's a there's a uh, a pure sense of entitlement. I think in uh, maybe a guy who who thinks his religion is is the right way, and he's going to mm-hmm. impose it on everyone else. Uh, you know, and that mm-hmm. that to me is if you think that way, that that I mean, it's one of the most uh, un-American things. In my opinion, that you can do. I mean, I that I mean, we were pretty clear about this from the start here in this country mm-hmm. of of what we were going to do in terms of religion and, and government, and we were going to separate right. those things. You know, that's right. Um, and and they they had every opportunity to do it differently, and most of those people who set this place up all believed in the same God the same way. And they had every opportunity to say, "This is the country that we're going to be. We're going to we're going to believe this thing. We're going to we're going to march it down this road." And they said, "No, we're not. You know, we understand what happened to us, and we understand what happened in the old country, um, and the persecution that took place. And so we think the best thing to do is why don't we just govern, and then we can go home." And and have our religion and and believe whatever we want to believe and and whatever values exactly. we hold dear in in that regard. Well, then we carry them with us, and that's how we <coughs> it, it influences our governance. Okay, not you know we're we're gonna say this is what the Bible says, so these must be our laws. That but you know this is our these are our values on on things, and I, I just it's. I, you know, some of the commercials that get made now and some of the things that people say about their religion, if I mean, if you substitute in Islam or, or you know, a, a Muslim candidate or, you know, hell, any other religion for that matter, it, and people would be people would lose their minds, you know. Yeah. I mean, they would. Yeah, they would. They just, would. Uh, but it's anyways. I, but we I, tend to be very uninformed about. The, the true history of religion and politics in our country. I was just looking on my bookshelf. There's a book up there. I believe it's called American Gospel by uh, John uh, Meacham. I think it is. Yeah. And uh, and in that book, he talks about how uh, Thomas Jefferson had created a version of the Bible where he cut out all of the miracles of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And he only had in there, like, I guess the stuff Jesus said, mm-hmm. but all of the, the you know, the stuff that he, I guess he thought was too magical, like <laughs> hocus pocus or whatever, <laughs> he cut that out. And most people don't know that, you know, <laughs> so they think, they think uh, every, you know, the, these, a lot of these preachers, uh, you know, who are trying to push, you know, uh, the fusion of church and state and. And all of that, they don't realize that uh, a lot of the founding fathers that they're preaching about and talking about weren't quite as uniform as they think. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. No. And listen. Uh, and, anyway. And nobody. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's rare that you find uh, any group of people uh, or inside any group of people, even inside a church, that believe right. kind of to the same degree or the same things. Uh, you know, or, or apply it to life in the same ways. Um, and it's and so we're all all unique, and that's the reason. That's one of the reasons why they didn't go that route is because of those differences and things. They felt like we should just you know kind of focus on governing for the best way that we should. We need to 
should do in terms of our rules and laws and, uh, you know, and let people vote on what they want to do. And, uh, you know, that's, again, I think that's the way we should go about it. Uh, you know, I, I'll say there were, uh, there were a couple of very encouraging races. Uh, to me. Oh, um, and, and, and these are both Republican races. Um, one was Tom Watley uh, getting beaten in, in Auburn, apparently. I mean, there's still some provisionals out there to provisional votes, and he only got beat by four votes, but uh, he got beat uh, by Jay Hovey, who was a city councilman there. Um, and then up in, in Jackson County, where uh, Tommy Haynes, who is, I don't know if you know much about uh, Haynes. Um, no. Uh, he, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, Haynes got beat by Mike Kirkland and Haynes is the author of probably the dumbest set of bills in the history of the Alabama legislature. Uh, and, and I don't mean that like in a set as though he is, you know, this was a set of bills directed at one particular topic. I'm just talking about his overall uh, bills that he he put forward. His body of work. Yeah, they they were uh, uh, bills about drug testing, welfare recipients. Uh, drug, you know the these these ridiculous work requirements things for for unemployment and and welfare. Um, uh, he he wanted to uh, bar school counselors last year from being able to talk to students about certain topics. Um, oh, I, that guy. Yeah, okay. yeah, and Ooh. the people in Jackson County. Listen, I'm, I. I went and researched this. I was like, well, who is the crazy person, uh, Mike Kirkland, that, you know, could top top, uh, Haynes over here that these people would vote for? He went the opposite. He, he 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 ran a race. He's like he's an older gentleman. He worked for Vulcan Materials for like 30 years. Um, he ran a campaign that essentially said, listen, our representation in Montgomery is not getting anything done because essentially the guy is crazy. Uh, he keeps putting up these bills that nobody's going to vote for. He's getting nothing done. I would like to go down there. I know how to work with the with the Road Builders Association. I've I've been with them for a number of years. I know all these people in the BCA. I know how to how to work with fellow lawmakers because I've done this with them, and I'm not insane. Uh, I will go down there. I'll bring money back to our county and we'll improve the roads and the bridges and the schools and the firemen and all the stuff around here. And people said, "Okay, let's do that. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I mean, and it wasn't particularly close. I mean, Mm. for the the incumbent got rolled in this thing and uh, and and good for Kirkland, man. I mean, it's I hope he is the same person that he claimed to be uh, on his website. I mean, listen, I look, I went to his website. There was. There were no guns or, you know, and I mean, <laughs> no, no guns, yeah, right? I mean, there's no guns. I'm not sure he has some, but I mean, it was, it wasn't, you know, uh, he wasn't fighting liberals and uh, nothing about Nancy Pelosi or, you know, what? Biden or anything. What? I know. It's like, I was like, is he what? a Republican? That's what I said. I said, holy <laughs> hell, this man's got a brain that operates, you know, uh, it, it just, uh, I, I, that's one, I'll say this, that one of the most discouraging parts of this whole activity uh, over uh-huh. the last several months is that if you ask, forget political party, forget political affiliation, conservative, liberal, whatever, and you just ask people to name their top five problems in the state of Alabama, I would bet you that at least three of those five would be the same. 
I mean, we, we may have different opinions on how to solve them, but right, I bet right. you at least three of the five, and yeah, I, I would even go as far as almost four of the five would probably be the same things, all right, and that we could actually solve state problems, not federal, not anything else, mm-hmm. you know, like gas prices this week or whatever, but actual mm-hmm. problems in the state. I guarantee you that the majority of them would be the same. And yet, yeah. I would challenge anybody out there to find a Republican ad that addressed those problems, any of those problems, not just all of them, any of them. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think you, I know nobody for governor addressed any of them. And I know nobody from running for Senate addressed any of them. Right. So what, you know, what are we doing? What are y'all doing? What are y'all voting for? Goofing around, Josh. We're just goofing around, man. I, I mean, it's just, I have, I have hopes and I've heard rumors. That your your girl, uh, Kay Ivey, um, now that this is over, she's going to run her last term uh, ever in public office. Um, she's not going to face any more challenges. That she's going to expand Medicaid. Um, she's going to she, she's going to pass a, a comprehensive gaming bill, and she's going to expand Medicaid. That's going to be her two main objectives. Uh, okay. She's going to fix the health care system in this state. She wants to have a Lurleen Wallace type legacy in which she leaves behind a health care system in the state of Alabama that people talk about. They talk about the improvements there. Uh, that w- is one of her goals. And I, I, I'll tell anybody I've told them there if she wants to do it, by God, I'll write about it and I'll promote the hell out of it. Sure, I don't care sure. if she wants to do that. I don't care what she's done in the past, what she says, anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, if she wants to do that and help the people of this state out in that w- regard, then by God, I will support the hell out of it. Oh, um, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And, you know, yeah. and, and so I hope that's the case. Um, mm-hmm. But. Yeah, that's not what anybody elected her for, you know? Right, right. I mean, right, right. What are we doing? Well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, I'm I'm with you. If she if she does, that's all I really care about. I mean, just do some good for the state. I don't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican. Do some good for the state, and I can support that even if I disagree with you on other policy issues or rhetoric or whatever. Uh for me, I'll just say real quickly, um, you know, of course I was I was extremely pleased about Will Boyd's uh, uh, escaping uh, a need for a runoff in the uh, Democratic primary. He didn't just escape it, race. man. He rolled. Yeah, he did. He, yeah. he, he it was a, and, and that's kind of we expected his victory to be decisive. Yeah. You know, like, you know, 20 points or mm-hmm. or, or something like that. Uh, but I mean, he exceeded. He far exceeded. our. I know if I speak for myself, he far exceeded my even what I thought would happen. Uh, and, and I'm real happy about that. Uh, so, uh, I think we're going to be in an interesting position in November because whether it's, whether it's Katie Britt, assuming that she comes out of the Republican primary or whether it's Will Boyd, there's a very good chance we're going to make history in our state because no other woman has been elected to the U S Senate. We've had women who were appointed to the U.S. Senate, uh, but no other woman has been elected. So I think if, if if Katie Britt can survive this runoff with Mo Brooks, and I think there's a very good chance she will, yeah, yeah. Uh, then she and, and, and Will Boyd, my candidate, are going to face off. And, it's, and either way, history is going to be made. And I think it'll be a good piece of history for the state either way. Even though obviously I prefer that Will win over Katie. Of course, yeah. The other the other thing that I thought was interesting, um, as you indicated, um, 
was the governor's race. And I'm going to tell you something that's going to be kind of interesting, I think, to watch, even though I'm not sure yet just how much we're going to get out of this. And that is on the Democratic side Mm -hmm. of the gubernatorial race. We've got a runoff between two black females. Right. One of whom is the daughter of Senator Hank Sanders. Uh, Senator Sanders, you, you can love him, you can hate him, but the reality is he is a tried and true Alabama political insider, and I think he will bring quite a few resources to his daughter's efforts to campaign. And I think because of his stature, they're going to be able to raise money. And so I would not count her out, even though she came in second place in the runoff. I wouldn't be shocked if she ended up winning in the runoff. And then if she wins wins in the runoff, I'm going to tell you something. While I'm not saying she's going to be able to beat Kay Ivey, I really don't believe that's possible. But I do believe, I do believe that that uh, Malika Forte Sanders or, or Sanders Forte is going to put on a hell of a campaign because of not only her father's resources and reach and her own achievements, but uh, you know her mother, right? You know Rose yeah. Sanders, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yes. Rose yeah. is a fireball. And so Rose alone is going to make this thing worth watching, man. I'm yeah, telling yeah, you, she's she's uh, I've been uh, I, I've 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 interviewed her mother. I I don't know a hundred or so times. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, so you know. I mean it's I, honestly because you know when you're in Montgomery, uh, uh, Faya Faya Toure is it? Well, she still goes by. She still go by Faya Toure. Uh, I guess she does. Uh, I I did call her Rose, yeah. but you're right. You're right. She actually changed uh, her name. Yeah. Right. And 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 so, you know, I and and I <laughs> I asked her one time if she would like me to be refer to her as Faya Toure or Rose Sanders. And she said, just spell them right. I don't care. Uh <laughs> and so, you know, but uh uh I mean honestly she had bigger fish to fry. She was protesting because she's always protesting. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, and and she's she's done good. She is uh, uh she's an attorney. Uh, she a is. licensed attorney and yeah, uh, has is. won won some cases, uh, some big cases, um, and so you know it, you're you're right. She she will make uh, there, there will be no shortage of sound bites uh, that come from this, um, and uh, you know I, I'll say this: I think it's it we're gonna have a probably a pretty low turnout event yeah. uh, on our hands, and yeah. it'll be interesting to see what transpires in in terms of votes for. Uh, you know, a black female candidate. But yeah, so anyways, uh, you know, I, I think that's a, um, it will, it'll be interesting to see if it's a low turnout race, you know, just if they can get out um, the, the black voters like Doug Jones did, um, if that, if they could get some excitement there and turn those folks out. I mean, this, this Republican primary, I mean, they had 20%. 20% of eligible voters went out and voted. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. that's a, that's a, you know, we only getting 20% out there. there. There's room for somebody to, to, to make some, uh, a surprise move. Um, so. And, and, and on that point real quickly, I know we're, we're out of time, but on that point, I'll just say real quickly that do not be surprised if there is a larger black turnout than usual with a black female running for governor 
because there's one of it's going to be one of them. Yeah. It's going to be it's either going to be Flowers or or Fortier, and then a black U.S. Senate candidate. Yeah, do not be surprised if the black turnout jumps up. Well, I hope so. I hope so. It, it would be. It, I tell you this. Uh, regardless of whether they win, and you know, and I think we both know the the, the long odds on that. But um, it, it would be interesting to see for the future um, of of what you know what how, what sort of a scare that might put in uh, to the other side, and what sort of energy it could inject into the Democratic Party uh, in terms of you know getting candidates that are more focused on issues in the black community and rallying those folks up to, to try to bring more attention to the black belt problems, to all of that, to, you know, to make sure that we're doing something here uh, that focuses on those issues and maybe turn a number of black candidates out to the poll or black voters out to the polls uh, in these elections that would turn the tide, uh, especially at the local levels uh, immediately and, and start to boost up those communities. It would be really tremendous to see. Um, all right, uh, right wing nuts. Uh, we uh, this week is the, the the guys that were on the platform uh, at the press conference uh, that were so outraged that uh, Beto O'Rourke was trying to turn that whole event, as they called it, into a political uh, show. Uh, he, he was going to politicize this event where nothing but politicians were present. Uh, so that's <laughs> you know, uh, and how dare you come to talk about this problem? that we right. helped create through our politics, uh, you know, right. uh, right. it just, yeah, he, there's nothing. I, I, I'll say this Beto. Um, I, I you know, I, I, some, I've had my issues sometimes with, with some of the stuff Beto's done. And I think sometimes he's hurt, uh, the democratic party overall with some of the things he said, but I think that approach that he had is one that Democrats need to employ a little bit more. Uh, mm-hmm. to be proud of what they believe in and to very publicly and very loudly point out the failures of Republican governance uh, and when when it is most pressing to do so. And we have done a very poor job of that. We have done a very poor job of that over the course of the last several months in terms of holding the January 6th people accountable and making that the spectacle that it should be that to show the American people that we're taking this thing seriously, and they should as well. Uh, they have done a very poor job of that. Uh, they've treated it as a police investigation instead of what it should be, which is a, uh, a congressional investigation out front for all the public to see that this is what happens when you try to undermine democracy in the country. Um, And and I think uh, those people getting all outraged uh, at Beto and the one guy calling him a son of a bitch and, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and Ted Cruz acting as though he was somehow the moral authority on the stage. Ah. It's just, I mean, my God, Ah. you know, and Abbott and (laughs) Abbott who couldn't even, who couldn't even look, he couldn't even look because he knows that. And they all know that's the reason they were so mad. The reason they were so mad is he was right. Beto was right mm-hmm. about what he was saying. Mm-hmm. He was right mm-hmm. about what he was saying, and that's why they were so angry. All right. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm ready to. I'm definitely ready to see Democrats throw some elbows and, and, and uh, you know, I, you know, I, I think every once in a while, I'm, I'm all for the, you know, being the good guy and wearing the white hat. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, I want to see a Steph Curry throw his mouthpiece and curse. Yeah. I'm just telling you. Yeah. I think it 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 sends a message. Yeah. It says we're passionate, we're fighting, 
and we're and we're not going to just lie down and let you roll over. Yeah, us. that's right. That's right. You know, it's, it's be like Steve Kirk. Bang on the table and tell people this is what you believe and that you're tired of yeah. it. And don't be afraid to show the emotion uh, of, of your, you know, your beliefs and, and how, you know, how the, the real world has affected you in these situations. Uh, you know, I think that's, that's right. it's very, very important for people to see it. And they'll get behind that. If it's true and it's genuine, then people will get behind it. And, um, you know, and. So, until uh, you know, until next week, uh, y'all try to keep everybody safe, and uh, y'all be safe out there yourselves. That's right. Peace.